were in the middle of our campaign, Life on the Mission, at her. Um, so in the past two weeks, we've looked at how we're called to be witnesses, telling others about Jesus, what he's done in our lives, and what he can do in the lives of those that we meet in our local settings, in our families, in our friendship groups, in our neighbourhoods, uh, in our workplaces, that we're called to seek the lost. And we've also looked at how in order to do that, we need to connect with people. That's what we looked at last week. We need to get to know people. Otherwise, how can we speak into their lives? So this week we're looking at service, that we serve others if we want to show them Christ. That we extend our kindness and care to others, we then win the right to speak into their lives. And we demonstrate, don't we, in a small way, the love that we've received from God to others. So today we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now a parable um, is basically another word for a story with a moral point. Okay, And in this story we learn about a man who shows incredible love and service uh, to his neighbour. Now the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. Okay, there, are, there are charitable organisations named after it, for example, Samaritan's Person Samaritans. And there's the phrase, being a good Samaritan, people talk about that in everyday life. It basically means being nice to a stranger. You hear stories in the news about that. There was actually an um, article I read in Forbes, uh, which is the one at the top there. Be a good Samaritan is what the uh, talk was called. And the tagline, you can, you can tweet it if you want to do, will show some kindness, go out of your way, you're sure to impact somebody's life in a big way. But what I want to say is if that's the main take-home message we get from the parable of Good Samaritan, I think, I want to say in some ways I think we're missing the point. So let's turn uh, to Luke 10. Uh, start with verse 25. Um, and we'll read the parable. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. <coughs> Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, 
that before we look at the parable itself, we have to understand the backstory. In other words, why Jesus tells the parable uh, that he says. Okay, we don't understand that initial conversation between the lawyer uh, and the, let me just go for that now. Uh, the initial conversation between the lawyer and Jesus. We don't understand the reason that Jesus is telling the parable in the first place. It's a bit like uh, when you walk in on a TV show or a film halfway through and the characters start talking to each other, they do think you don't know what it means because you haven't seen it from the beginning. So we have to understand the context of the parable. So in verse 25, we meet the person called the lawyer. Now, in other translations, that would be an expert in the law or an expert in religious law. So this guy knew his Bible really well. The Bible in his day, which would have basically been the Old Testament. He took the scriptures seriously. He's like a religious heavyweight. And he knew in particular the law really well. That's the law of Moses. There are 613 commandments from Exodus to Deuteronomy. Okay, now you might know the Ten Commandments, maybe, but there are 603 on top of that. Okay. And he asked Jesus a really important question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, we're looking at the moment, aren't we, on life on mission. We want people to come to know Jesus. I mean, can you think of a better question? We are. Right? Only people ask that all the time. How easy would it be right, to share the gospel? Right? We wouldn't have awkwardness or fear about bringing up God. You know, you walk into the office and your colleague says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? It's like a, an open goal in football, isn't it? One foot in the line. Just stake the gospel and you're done. It might be worth wondering for a second what you would say in response to that question. If somebody was to ask you that, what would you say? Now, uh, we see in verse 25 that the question of this lawyer is not being wholly genuine. It says he's asking Jesus to put him to the test, that's in verse 25. In other words, he thinks he knows the answer already. Well, I'm a school teacher, I do that all the time. Uh, I ask students questions that I already know the answer to, and often they're kind of trick questions, like they're designed to test if people really understand what's going on in my physics lessons. I do it for two reasons. Number one, to help the student realise, maybe, okay, I've still got more work to do, and to help me know, you know, how good is the student really? How much understanding does the student really have? But here, the lawyer is calling Jesus teacher, but he himself thinks that he's the teacher. Now, we can speculate what his reason for that might be. Um, the most plausible, I think, is that he believes Jesus isn't upholding the Old Testament law well enough. He's doing things like touching people who are unclean, like lepers. He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. We saw that last week. He's challenging the religious leaders, like this lawyer that we meet. He's, always, he's making extraordinary claims. He's calling God his father. So these religious guys, they're worried about Jesus and what he's teaching. And they believe Jesus is undermining the law. So Jesus responds by asking the lawyer what he thinks. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's in verse 26. Jesus often does this, and this came up again in our teaching and explored in the, um, in the week just gone, that Jesus would often question his questioner. I'd encourage you to look in the Bible, if you get time, in the Gospels, how many times Jesus is asked a question and he responds with another question. It forces the person that's asking the question to open up in their assumptions, what assumptions they make when they ask a certain question. Maybe aren't we, you know, in our evangelism, we need to ask more questions. Not just be always wanting to tell people the gospel, that's a good thing to do, obviously. But are we asking good questions as well? 
So the lawyer's on the back foot, right? He's, he, he is an expert. He's on the back foot because he's been asked a question. He's, he's asked a question, now he's being asked on himself. But he's an expert, he's a law-abiding Jew, and he reels off what is really the textbook answer. In verse 27, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. Now we see in Mark 12, in Mark 12, uh, there's another interaction between Jesus and another lawyer, probably a different one. And this lawyer asks Jesus, which is the most important or the greatest commandment? And he responds as follows. Jesus says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And what's really interesting, he's asked there for one commandment, and he gives two. Because they come together in a package. If you truly love God, you're going to love your neighbour. You can't say you love God and still hate your neighbour. Right? People are made in the image of God. Every person is precious to him. So the way we treat one another is a reflection of the way that we see God as well. Now every day this lawyer would recite that first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And this is you know, total obedience, isn't it? Every second of every day, total obedience to God. Obedience to him in your emotions, in your desires, in your thoughts, in your will. And then towards his neighbour, He's to love him as he loves himself. Not love him a lot. But go to the same lengths he would for himself for those around him. I mean, this is unbelievable devotion that's being asked for here. This is, I would say, impossible devotion. I wonder how you're doing on this. Have you in any way dishonoured God in the last few days? Have you in any way failed to pray, have you sinned, have you been selfish, unkind, thoughtless, ungrateful? Have you neglected anyone in any way? Well, it's bad news, isn't it? You know, you failed the test and so have I. No one can obey like this. The standard that Jesus is setting here is what we would call holiness. It's a way of living and being that's totally different and unlike us. It's a way of living and being that's a lot like God. And holiness is beautiful on one level and terrifying on the other. I mean, a life of dedication to God and to others looks admirable, it looks attractive, but it raises some difficult questions, some scary questions. You know, what might God ask me to do? What about my desires? What about my hopes? What about my dreams? Now, it is worth saying at this point, I don't think Jesus is saying you're responsible for everyone. Okay, if we're listening to God, uh, sorry, I don't think Jesus is saying that you're responsible for everyone because some people get into real trouble. Like there are some people who can't say no to anyone. So they can never say no, they find that hard. But we have to remember this commandment to love our neighbour comes under the commandment to love God with all we have. So we need to be doing this in relationship with God, listening to him, asking him, who have you put in my life for me to care for? So we're freed from the burden of feeling maybe responsible for absolutely everyone that we can think of. And it's also worth saying that we have varied responsibilities. I, for example, have a responsibility to my wife Ruth, to my daughter Jemima. It would be quite wrong if I were to serve others so much that I neglected my marriage, 
or I neglected my role as father. But nevertheless, Jesus' words are, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. But on the flip side, if we fail, because we're saying, well, if I have others, what's there going to be left for me? Then I think we're failing to trust our Heavenly Father as a supplier of all our needs. So there's a balance. Now if we go back to the text, uh, Jesus' final words in verse 28, you know, they're a bit like the hammer in the name of the prophet. Because they say, do this and you will live. What? Do you do that? Love God with all you are? Love your neighbour as you love yourself? I thought Jesus was full of grace and mercy. I thought we were saved by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. I thought we were saved by faith, not by works. Do this and you will live. Now it's important to realise Jesus isn't preaching here a different gospel. He's not teaching that if you meet this high holy standard, that by your own hard work and effort, right, you can be good enough for God. But he is teaching us an important principle, I think, here, which is that we cannot accept the good news without first realising the bad news. The good news is that Jesus does forgive us, based on faith alone in him. The bad news is that we need to be forgiven, that we are helpless sinners, and we have no other hope than the mercy of Christ. You know, think of the most noble, moral thing you've ever done, the best thing you've ever done. Well, even that act will fail the test. Um, Isaiah 64.6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Even the good things we've done, they've been stained, and they've been tainted by our sinful intentions and our sinful actions. So only when we realise this are we ready to run to the cross for mercy. Okay, so, let's get back to the text. Now, sadly for this lawyer, uh, he's kind of a bit sad, really, um, because he thinks he can be good enough. He thinks he can be good enough, and that he is able to meet that holy standard that Jesus has set, and that he himself, by giving that answer, has basically committed himself to. But maybe he's feeling a little bit convicted, because in verse 29, he says, and who is my neighbour? And we're told he asked this, desiring to justify himself. So he does think he can be good enough for God. But what's going on in Matthew 5, uh, 43 to 44, we read Jesus is uh, in conversation with the Pharisees. And he says to them, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the Pharisees, the lawyer would be part of that group, um, interpreted the scriptures to be saying that those who were devout, law-abiding Jews, were the enemy. They maybe didn't count as your neighbour. Okay? You know, it's who's good enough to qualify as being my neighbour. It's like a legal loophole. Sure, I'll love my neighbour, but who actually counts as my neighbour? I wonder if there's anyone you can think of that you think, oh, I struggle to help them. Someone maybe who's wronged you. Someone who's betrayed you, let you down. Someone who holds an opinion maybe you don't agree with. And so it's a response to this question, who is my neighbour, 
that Jesus tells the parable. So now we're ready to listen to and understand the parable. <coughs> now the first person we meet in the, in the parable is the man beaten on the road. The Jerusalem to Jericho road was notorious and it was dangerous. He basically didn't hang around on that road if he had any sense. Uh, he falls among robbers, they steal his clothes, they take his possessions, his money, they beat him, and they leave him half dead. So he's left in a really bad way. And then we meet the priest and the Levite. Now the priest would have been a minister in the temple. So I guess the best modern day equivalent would be you know, a pastor, I suppose. Um, the Levite also worked in the temple, but was kind of less high profile. So they would do things like carrying, moving, setting up, packing down, maybe a little bit of temple security, that sort of thing. So the modern day equivalent of them would maybe be, you know, uh, a frequent church girl who serves on a number of teams. Uh, who's in that same church that our priest is, is, is a part of. Now both these men, and they see the man on the road, pass by on the other side. Now there might have been good reasons to do so, as I said before, the road's dangerous. Stopping to help the man uh, would have been at risk potentially to their own safety. The guy might have been a, you know, a rival gang member. Or maybe it was a trap, maybe he had it coming. But we can see that despite their religious standing, they both failed to show love to the man on the road. And in the same way, you know, we can come to church, we can sing songs of worship, we can pray, we can do all the right things, but fail to love those who are in need. So loving God and loving others is demonstrated in our actions and in our character, not just in our religious observance on Sunday. To do one and not the other is really the definition, isn't it, of hypocrisy. James 2, 15, 17 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, sometimes people don't need our prayers so much as maybe just our resources, our care, our love. If we say we have faith, but don't demonstrate our faith in a life lived out that's characterised by loving others, you know, the question is, is that faith really alive? And 1 John 3, 17 to 18 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Okay, so the Samaritan, then, is the last person that we meet. And we read that the Samaritan, when he saw him, when he saw the man beaten on the road, he had compassion. His heart is moved by the state that he sees the man in. He's not motivated by impressing others. He isn't hoping to be able to share the story on Facebook or Instagram later and show everyone how caring he is. He isn't doing it because his friends or his family or his elders are watching, so he's trying to impress them. He does it because he genuinely cares for the man. I mean, he loves him, he's broken by the man's condition. Now, what exactly does the Samaritan do? What exactly does the Samaritan do? 
Well, he does a number of things. Firstly, he connects with the man in verse 34. It says he went to him. You know, are we deliberately, intentionally making connections with our neighbours and our colleagues and others? That's what we were learning about last week. Sometimes we can show we care for people by taking an interest in their lives. Yeah, to do that, we have to talk to people, we have to connect with people. Do you remember the things people say to you when you see them again? Are you consoling them, encouraging them, supporting them, praying for them? Secondly, the Samaritan expends his own effort. It says he bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. Are you giving them your energy to love others? This can be emotional or physical energy. Are you willing to help those in need with cleaning, gardening, running errands, babysitting? Just some skill you have that you, that you know they would value. Thirdly, he shares his possessions. It says he sat in on his own animal. You know, are you generous with the things that you own? God has made you a steward of the things that you own. And you've been given them from God to be used for his purposes. Fourthly, the Samaritan gives up his time. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. You know, he's gone out of his way. The course of his day has changed. Because he sees the man, the direction he's going in has changed. You know, do we have time for others? Are we willing to sacrifice it for others? Often time can be the most precious commodity of all. You know, you can be so busy. I know for me personally, time can be a real sacrifice. Free time can be that free time can be a real sacrifice. In verse 35, he gives him his money. He says he took out two denarii. Now, apparently, I read, it's thought this might pay for 24 days' stay at the end, and it's about two days' worth of earnings. Are you generous with your money? You know somebody who's in need that could be helped by it. We read an amazing prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29. He's praying in the temple of David, and he, he, he prays this. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honour come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. All the money you own is a gift from God. And so if you give it to others, you're just giving back to the one who gave it to you in the first place. And finally, it isn't just a one-off. We see that he does say, uh, the Good Samaritan, he says, when I come back, he's intending to come back. And so when we commit to serving others, you know, are we constant and persistent in supplying the needs of others? Or do we easily give up, become impatient when there are problems? You know, sticking with people can be hard sometimes. It can be easy sometimes to give once and just walk away. But the Samaritan is, isn't he, just amazing. At risk to his own life, at loss to his own time, his money, his energy, out of love and compassion, he reaches out and cares for a complete stranger. Someone he doesn't know, someone he doesn't know he can trust. The Samaritan really is loving his neighbour as himself. Now, we have to remember, we have to remember that Jesus told the story in response to the question 
who is my neighbour? And so he finishes the story with another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And the answer is obvious, right? It's the Samaritan. And so Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbour, is basically who is being neighbourly, or who is acting as the neighbour, or more personally, who can you be neighbourly to? Who can you reach out to? Neighbour or colleague or acquaintance or stranger. But the lawyer's answer is very insightful because if you notice, he can't quite bring himself to mention the Samaritan's name. Instead, he says in answer to Jesus' question in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. <coughs> what I haven't mentioned so far is that the lawyer hated the Samaritans. They were basically false believers. They worshipped at the wrong place. They worshipped in the wrong way. And that's what's so shocking about the story that Jesus is telling here. The lawyer might have been expecting the three travellers on the road to be the priest, the Levite, and maybe an Israelite. Or the priest, the Levite, and the Pharisee as the hero. But no, it's the hated Samaritan. In John 8, 48, you see that. Because uh, the Jews are speaking to Jesus and they say to him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So being called a Samaritan was most definitely an insult. Okay, it was most definitely an insult. Now why does Jesus do this? Why? I'll offer two suggestions. The first is because the lawyer's gut reaction to the story reveals in his heart his hatred of the Samaritan, right? That even in his response to hearing the story, it kind of shows he doesn't love the Samaritan. So in a sense, Jesus is very obviously showing his sin just in the way that he reacts to hearing the story. You know, secondly, I was thinking, presumably, you could have made the Samaritan the man on the road, right? I mean, if I was telling a story and I was trying to challenge someone, I would probably have the Jew or the Pharisee, the last one, but acting amazingly and lovingly caring for the Samaritans and beaten up on the road. Why doesn't Jesus tell it that way around? Well, I think it's because that story would just have been laughed at. I mean, I think the response would have been, what respectable Jew would do that for a Samaritan? But if you turn it the other way around, it's really clever. Because even a respectable Jew, when they're on the road dying, would probably accept being helped by a Samaritan. And so you can't escape the conclusion. You can't escape the conclusion and so finally then, in verse 37, Jesus ends with, you go and do likewise. If you want eternal life, do as the Samaritan did. If you want to be a genuine follower of Christ, reach out to everyone. Love and serve everyone as you care for yourself. So in conclusion, uh, my question to you is, who do you most identify with in the story of the Good Samaritan? Now maybe you would say the priest or the Levite who say all those times when I haven't reached out to help those I ought to have done. Maybe you identify with the lawyer. You like to justify yourself and tell yourself, well, I, I do this, I do that, so I'm okay. But I wonder, do any of you identify with the man beaten on the road? You see, so far all we've really had is Jesus laying down the law thick. He's been saying that the path to eternal life 
is by loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. And as we said, that standard really is impossible for us to meet. We've all failed miserably. We're pretty good at loving ourselves, but that's about as far as it goes. We may in some circumstances love our spouse, maybe, or our children, in the way that the Samaritan does, you know, loving them as we love ourselves, but anyone? A stranger? And so if we try and live this command out in our own strength, we're going to fail. We've failed so far, and we're going to keep failing. And even if we commit all of ourselves to serve others, so we can meet this standard, we'd probably find that we ended up doing it not because we really love the person, but because we were just trying to meet some religious standard or make ourselves good enough. Paul says, it's really challenging in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 3. Oh, no. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the real question is, I think, how do we genuinely love others? How do we love others in the same way that the Samaritan loved the man on the road? How do we have compassion? Well, the answer lies, as it always does in the Christian life, in the amazing grace of God in Jesus. We're saved not because of our goodness or because of our deserving it. We're saved in spite of being undeserving, in spite of being evil. God, in his mercy, sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, by punishing him in our place on the cross. And as a result of that perfect sacrifice, we are made holy and blameless before God. Colossians 1, 21-22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, that means you were cut off from God, you were opposed to God, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, that means he's restored relationship with you, in his body of flesh, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, above any sense in which we're not good enough. And so again, if we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, in lots of ways, we're a lot like a man beaten up on the road, but kind of worse. We actually deserve the state we find ourselves in, because we've willingly sinned against God, we've sinned against our neighbour, we've rejected God as authority, We've put ourselves before others. But Jesus is even better than the Good Samaritan in that he not only risks his life, but he willingly lays it down for us, even on a cross, bearing the sins of me and you. So we're rescued, we're saved, we're delivered so that we might now serve God in thankfulness for what he's done. So, uh, two final scriptures. Uh, Romans 8, 3 to 4. I'm going to start halfway through verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And it's that phrase, in order that. Jesus' death on the cross, his condemning of sin on the cross, means that 
we can now fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, but by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. <coughs> so we've been saved, so we meet the requirements of the law, that's the requirements that Jesus lays down, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, to love our neighbour as ourselves, but by the power of the Holy Spirit that's now working in us. If we need help for more compassion, if we need help for more tenderness, more care for our neighbour, even help with identifying who is my neighbour, who are you calling me, Lord, to, to serve, pray and ask for the Holy Spirit for help. He can empower you and me. Without the Spirit, we're just working in our own strength. We're back to the same situation the lawyers in, trying to justify ourselves. Secondly, Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all the people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, such as sin, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, who are zealous for good works. It says that we are trained by grace and that we're zealous for good works because we've been redeemed from our sin. We've been purified and only then are we zealous for good works. So our love for our neighbour should be a natural response to the knowledge that we have been loved and we have been rescued by Jesus. I've been bought at such a precious price. How can I not extend that same love to others? And in doing so, we give glory to God. By extending the love that we've received, the love and the compassion we've received from Christ, by extending that to others, we give glory to God. And we show the world who Jesus is. Now, we do need wisdom in how to give and serve others. I mean, to take an example, if we took the example, say, of the homeless, okay, the police and charities will often say that giving money to beggars on the street may not, may not be the best thing for them. There can be, you know, issues with addiction and that sort of thing. So it may be kinder to buy them a coffee or to get them something to eat, or even give, give to local charities. There is, you know, wonderful local charity, New Hope, for example, in Watford, which works with the homeless, having to actually rehabilitate them. But... It's the attitude in your giving that counts. So if you're like, well, I'm not going to give because I don't want to be taken advantage of, or I don't want to be shown up as a fool for giving money that then gets misused, then I think that's just pride. But if your motivation is the good of the one you are giving to, then you are fulfilling Jesus' command. So to finish, I've got a challenging quote uh, from a Scottish minister called Murray McChain. It's also in Simon Gillibo's Choose Life devotional. It reads, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own. 
then where should we have been? Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels, shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the ninety-nine and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yes, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet gave his own blood. Oh dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much more, give often, give freely, to the violent, the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So, let's go out in the love and the grace of God to extend that same love, that same grace, that same kindness, that same service that we have received from him to others. Okay, um, if the worship can come back up, is that right? I'm just going to play one more song. So, um, as the worship band are playing, um, there's just a few people that I think might want to respond uh, to the message. The first is maybe you identify as the man beaten on the road, so you know maybe you haven't received the love and the grace of God. You've been doing things out of your own efforts, you haven't been doing it out of the love and the grace you received from God. If, if you feel like that, I'd really encourage you to go to the back. There'll be a prayer team standing at the back during the worship, that's okay. They'll be standing at the back. Please, please go and uh, ask for prayer. Secondly, maybe you identify with the people who kind of walked on by, the Levites and priests, and you think, you know what, there's good I could have been doing and I haven't been doing it. Well, this is your chance to repent, your chance to ask for forgiveness, and to be filled with the Holy Spirit for power to live that out. And I wonder as well, maybe, maybe there's somebody here who's just in a situation where you're, you're, you are um, caring and loving your neighbour, but maybe it requires a lot of wisdom. It's not easy to know always how to do that. So if you, if you just want to receive help, wisdom in knowing how, then please, please go to the back. And, you know, just to encourage you generally, please go to the back for prayer for anything else. Maybe you just want more of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you just you want some other need. Nothing to do with what I'm just saying. Please go to the back.